Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us today, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in Japan. Ragnar owns and manages the Trolley Stop Cafe in New Orleans, which was featured on the season opener of Gordon Ramsay's show, 24 Hours to Hell and Back Again, thus making Ragnar our most famous guest to date. Check it out. Ragnar also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with the movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. The movie is 1939's The Rules of the Game, which is under the comedy drama genres. The director was Jean Renoir. He also is well known for such movies as The Grand Illusion, A Day in the Country, which was a short film, The Golden Coach, Diary of a Chambermaid, Le Bete Yuban, and The Southerner. Some other movies that were big in 1939 included Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Wuthering Heights, Shirley Temple's The Little Princess, and Son of Frankenstein. Now, Tom, tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and why you brought it to us today. So this movie takes place just before the beginning of World War II in a French manor, in a French countryside. Um, and it, it follows a collection of uh, upper-class bourgeois people engaged in a series of overlapping love triangles. And the main couple, or one of the main couples, it's kind of hard to give primacy to, to any of them, is um, Christine and then her husband, the Marquis Chenez. And uh, Chenez is having an affair with another woman, Guinevere, and Christine has caught the eye of a young aviator named Andre. They decide that, that Andre and Guinevere are gonna come to a party in their country estate. Uh, also coming is Octave, played by Renoir himself, who is a, uh, kind of a, a poor bourgeois man. He's, he's an upper class, but he's also sort of a clown and he's also an instigator. He kind of tries to get these different couples together. Meanwhile, on the estate, we also have a lower class love triangle between Lisette, a recently hired poacher named uh, Marceau, and then her husband, Schumacher. Um, and so you have this kind of lower level or lower class love triangle and these two upper class tri love triangles colliding. It's very funny. It's gorgeous. It is also kind of very sad, but also filled with sympathy. And it also has this kind of deep irony underneath it that I hope to explore today. Tom, this was the first time I had seen this movie. I, I did hear of it over the years. I think it ended up being exactly what I thought like a stereotypical French movie from that time period would be like in the sense of uh, how the characters are portrayed and, and, and talk to each other. I did find it uh, very humorous and I, I enjoyed it. I did not realize that was the director though. So that's uh, that was news to me. Um, um, that's very interesting to hear. And I, I did enjoy the movie. Uh, I'm going to say most of my thoughts for later. It made me think of a lot of other things that I've seen, but uh, I'm going to just leave it at that for now. And I'm going to turn it over to KJ. Uh, what are your initial thoughts? 
I also had not heard of the movie before Tom recommended it for Talking Pictures Trivia, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I couldn't believe it was from 1939 because of the camera work, the dialogue, the framing. It felt like a very, very modern movie. Um, it was very quick. It's a little hard to follow. Um, as Tom was pointing out, there's a lot of characters. There's a lot of couples, a lot of triangles, um, maybe some hexagons i don't know but it was it was it was uh there was a lot going on in that movie so i'm really excited to talk about it okay uh ragnar um did you have any familiarity with this movie yes actually i was quite familiar with this movie um a few years ago uh the criterion collection released it on blu-ray uh they remastered it uh the 1955 edition or 59 edition i'm not quite sure uh, the film has gone through some various editions and that's what drew me to the film in the first place. The fact that there are multiple versions of it. Anytime a movie goes through that kind of transition, it really interests me. Why did it go through that transition? And I like to compare the versions. So when I was diving into international film via Akira Kurosawa, Renoir is just one of the very, very tight, the very largest titans of directors. And so I ran through his filmography early on. And one of the questions we ask every one of our guests, it's critical to our whole episode here, is what snack would you recommend uh, enjoying while watching this film? So I came up with three responses that was pretty much delivered by the film itself. Um, so if you're watching the film in the morning, like I was, then the answer is obvious. You have to have two fried eggs or two hard-boiled eggs, either one, with a slice of big ham and some white wine. That is the only way to watch the movie in the morning. And I think Jean Renault would agree with me. Now, let's say you watch it at lunch or at dinner. You, you know, you're more of a nighttime movie going. No problem. You have some fish, you fry it, and then you add some sea salt after the fish is cooked. Not before, but after. But then maybe you're also watching it and you're not that hungry. No big deal. You can have a snack, no tea, you can have coffee, or you can have a slice of lemon in hot water if you have some arthritis. I think those are all perfect choices, and I like that we have different modes depending on the time of day, so that's beautiful. <laughs> and now I'll turn it over to Tom for Movie Quiz. It's time for Movie Quiz. And now we have our first round. Um, each question in this first round will be worth exactly one point unless I change my mind in the middle. Our categories are The Marriage of Figaro, Reminders, and Love and Sympathy. Since you're our guest, Ragnar, please, which one would you like? Well, seeing as it's trivia and it's all about remembering, I think Reminders is the best way to go. It's time for question one. What film television show, play, etc. Does this movie remind you of and why? What work do you feel kind of shares a genre with this film? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right. And uh, as our guest of honor, Ragnar, please go for it. Well, uh, throughout this film, uh, I was actually reminded of a slightly newer film called uh, Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, this is a film by Igmar Bergman, the absolute legendary uh, Swedish director. And the reason they, re uh, they remind me of each other, actually, is because they both take a stab at kind of the, the wealthy 
class of their society in a comedic way. The, the main difference is Smiles of a Summer Night is far more comedic. Um, while, the, while Rules of the Game is a comedy, I think it's a more subtle and polite comedy, so to speak. Uh, Smiles of a Summer Night is going to be more slapsticky and more obviously a comedy to modern viewers. So they really, I think, have a strong correlation to each other. When I was watching this, specifically when they go to the country chateau, okay, and again, this may not be the most uh, direct parallel. Um, I'm not exactly sure where you were going with this one, but one of the things that jumped out to me specifically in that sequence when they went to the countryside was I got a very uh, like like a Robin Hood vibe because the guy, the poacher is trying to steal a rabbit. Meanwhile, there's tons of rabbits all over the place, but they made such a big deal about this guy stealing. So it was almost like this poor guy going into the King's forest and getting one of the prized animals from the King's forest. And it shows the difference between the classes. Um, and that's, that was just something that, it, again, it may not directly answer the question, but it's something that jumped out to me was even though they focused more on more heavy handed on the uh, rich side of the equation there, that, that class uh, difference is really, really jumped out at me. And KJ, what do you have? So before I give my answer, I, I, I really like Ragnar's answer. Uh, Smiles of a summer night. I too thought of that movie while watching this movie. Um, however, rules of the game, it felt like there were so many more characters, at least smiles. Um, it, it really felt like there was maybe four people. So only two triangles, maybe three, but, um, but anyway, my answer here it is, um, Seinfeld, you got the beginning where things are kind of happening by the end, it's all folding in on each other. What's the deal with all these triangles? I, 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 I really thought Seinfeld when I was watching this movie. Very interesting answers. I'm, I'm going to give the point to Ragnar. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the the genre of the film is interesting. And I've seen Smiles. It's been more than a decade since I've seen it. So I'm, I'm a little rusty on it. Think, so the genre of this film kind of comes into that high comedy thing, right? Which is um, a comedy about, or comedy of manners, a, a comedy about kind of the wealthy class that is about class, class distinction. And, you know, you mentioned that, Nick, with, with Robin Hood. Um, and it looks at this class in sometimes a biting way, sometimes not. Sometimes it's sort of an escapist. You know, we see a lot of these in the 1930s, not in order to necessarily condemn these people, but to like kind of escape from the depression via uh, this kind of comedy. Um, one thing I thought of when, when actually watching this was... I haven't seen a lot of this show, but Sex and the City also kind of works in this way, where you do have this kind of upper class of people. Um, in America, it's kind of based just on wealth. There's not literally classes like, like there was in France. Um, but there's also kind of a celebration of clothes or shoes. That's a big thing in Sex and the City. They get new shoes all the time um, and, and that type of thing. Smiles, from what I remember, does that. Um, but Smiles also is a little bit more of a... a kind of a sex comedy also, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's interesting how sex is treated because in, in these kind of, you know, comedies about wealthy people, sex is almost always sort of just discussed. It's not this kind of rarefied thing. It's always just kind of there and it's part of the conversation. This goes back to my introduction of the um, stereotypical French type film. I mean, we all have biases and, and stereotypes uh, in society. And it was just funny to see how... Uh, 
it's very common even in later moves that the French portrayal of them being open with uh, mistresses and lovers and, and all this. And, and what was interesting about this was it actually transcended the classes. So whether you were one of these elitists, you still had your love triangles or as KJ said, maybe hexagons. Um, but even the, um, the people who worked in the house, okay, who were of the lower class, of the service class, they also had their triangles. Oh, yeah. It's like marriage did not seem like much. It was almost like a title or a stamp. And then you really do what you want to do to be happy. So it was a very interesting to see that it wasn't just the elite. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I think that's the, one of the main differences between Smiles and Rules of the Game. Smiles, I think, focused more on the wealthy people. Uh, Rules really didn't pull any punches and nor take any prisoners. Uh, from top to bottom, it was kind of a scathing uh, satire of the entire culture. Because no matter how rich or how poor you are, you gossip, you cheat, you deceive, you put on a face for the public, but then you do the opposite in private. And that's the, as Jean Renaud would put, he feels like the culture was rotten to the core. And he was trying to portray that in this movie. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. And it, it's a big divide for me in this film is how much is scathing and how much is gentle in terms of, of the satire. Um, because he does, I, I know in his autobiography, he does say that. He says something towards the end, like he realized that this, this film depicted the, the culture as being, you know, rotten to the core. Um, uh, you know, the other thing was it's, it's people dancing on the edge of a volcano was another way <laughs> that this is described. Um, but also in, the, in that same that same section of his autobiography, he talks about the movie as being this thing. He just this kind of delightful thing in this 18th century style, like in um, uh, Beaumanchon and in, in a style like that, or Marivaux, one of those French writers of the 18th century that he wanted to create. Um, and it seems like the interpretation of it as scathing, which I, I, he might have even adopted came sort of later in the film or came you know, from the audience. I'm like a little skeptical of how scathing it actually is. Because um, while I think it's deeply ironic, there's also a lot of sympathy for people. Like, you know, people who are fighting over a, a, a woman or, you know, whatever, um, end up a lot of times liking each other, <laughs> like they end up getting along. Next up, we'll have Nick pick a category. The two remaining are The Marriage of Figaro and Love and Sympathy. Well, we're already talking about it, so how about we continue with Love and Sympathy? Excellent choice. Love and Sympathy. It's time for question two. Many different love triangles feature an expression of sympathy between competing lovers. What expression of sympathy between lovers did you find most intriguing or interesting and why? And in this question, it's worth actually two points. One for the best scene, really the scene I would like the best, and one for the best justification. Many different love triangles feature an expression of sympathy between competing lovers. What expression of sympathy between lovers or competitors did you find most interesting or intriguing and why? One point for the best scene and one point for the best justification. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, I'm also locked in. 
All right. Um, and I think, KJ, you said locked in first. So we will let you go first. All right. So there was a lot of these scenes. And again, I, there was a lot of characters. And um, I tried to follow the best I could. But the one scene that stood out to me was between uh, Schumacher. <laughs> to say that without mm. a French accent at all. Schumacher. <laughs> Schumacher. <laughs> Schumacher. Schumacher and the poacher. Um, again, his name was, I don't know if I can... Uh, Mosso. Schumacher. They're, <laughs> I don't know if they were literally sitting on a log, but it was after they, the, you know, the girl was not interested in either of those, uh, Miss Lizette. So they're kind of like, oh, we're, we're such fools. Or, you know, they sat around... Um, so I'd say them. The sympathy that they had for each other was kind of the most extreme because of the hatred Schumacher had for the poacher from the beginning. Okay, good. And so it's it's that scene when um, Masso first leaves the house and he sees uh, Schumacher kind of crying next to the bridge. All right, and the justification is that they had such strong animosity initially. Yeah, most improved there. Okay, the excellent. Nick, you're up next. So the one that I found the most interesting was towards the end of the movie, which was the love triangle, which we didn't know was a love triangle between Octave, Andre, and Christine. Uh, in the greenhouse, they realize, or they at least profess to each other that they love each other, which is the first time we realize that it is more than a friendship, as this movie alludes that friendship with men is silly early on. And in excitement, Octave goes back to the house to uh, get, Christine's coat so that they can run away together and she runs into uh, Lizette who is the domestic for Christine and pretty much thinks about it in the bigger picture of if this would be a good strategy shortly after he then runs into Andre who also is in love with Christine and he does something that is atypical in this movie a truly selfless act he then gives the coat and his own coat off his back to Andre to run out to uh, see Christine and run away with her. When originally it was his intent, but he realized uh, he would not be able to provide for her and actually was the good friend that they all said he was and positioned Andre. Unfortunately, it didn't work out too well for Andre in the end, but that was the uh, sequence that I really thought was the most impactful. All right. And your reason for finding it most impactful was the selfless, selfless act. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And Ragnar, what do you have? Well, uh, for me, the expression of sympathy that was most impactful uh, was between uh, Genevieve and Christine. And there, there are two reasons for it. Uh, the first one is that Christine is a foreigner. She's Austrian. In French culture. So that I think was a, a, a masterstroke because it provides the audience a gateway into this culture because it's ridiculous to us and it's ridiculous to Christine as well. So we kind of see things through her eyes a little bit. Um, and earlier in the movie, when uh, Genevieve is talking to Robert, uh, Robert, uh, she basically says that Christine would not understand his infidelity because she's not a Paris woman. She just wouldn't understand. Um, and then that tied into the scene, which is what I'm building up to, where the two women basically 
laid the cards down and, and, and Christine tells her, you know, I know you're having an affair. He can't hide it. He's too honest. And then they start sharing moments of, of things they don't like about him and, and, and bond over that. And the second reason why that's my favorite scene um, between competitors, so to speak, is because it shows how, how unsustainable and how just surface level these bonds are. Um, you know, they, they like to co off and say, hey, you know, you can have a mistress. Everyone has a mistress. It's no big deal. Be polite. But those things don't last because a little bit further on, she, Christine shows that she's still broken up about it, that she's still upset. Uh, she says, my whole life has been a lie, even though she has, quote unquote, made peace with it, uh, with Genevieve. So it shows that this culture is not really sustainable. Okay. Thank you very much. Some great answers here. Whew, I don't know what to go with. I have to say, I think of those three scenes mentioned, my favorite, which is the criteria by which I judge everything, is actually the, the one Nick selected. So definitely one point for Nick there. Um, I just, I, uh, I, I love that scene. I love all of those scenes. Um, I think that maybe the one that wasn't mentioned that I really like is when um, Andre and Robert uh, make up, they're punching each other. And then at one point he's like, Christine's gone. He's like, yes, Christine's gone. Christine's gone. There's gunfire. Yes, yes. All right, well, we might as well pick her up and, and go on with our lives. And they just get over it. Whatever their problem is, they immediately just get over. But I, I do, I, I have such love for Octave in, in this film. Watching him like, that, especially when he puts the coat on Andre before Andre goes out, that little detail just kind of warms my heart. And so I'm gonna give Nick a point for, for that selection. Um, now, in terms of the justification, oh, I'm, I'm gonna give it to, to Ragnar. Um, you, you also said the most copious explanation. I, I agree with KJ, that was the most improved scene between Marceau and, and Schumacher. I, I think the, the foreigner stuff is though interesting, um, the, the just, you know, that she's an Austrian and, and she's a foreigner. The, the idea of the, the kind of the, the shallowness of the relationships, I think it's true that you're not supposed to get care that much, right? So I agree with you there. Um, I think why I'm, I'm still giving you the point, but kind of maybe pushing back and, and kind of want to hear from you on this is I don't know if the movie entirely thinks that it's, it's a bad thing or that it's a reflection of this society crumbling. I'm kind of, I really don't know how I feel about it, but uh, I, I, sort of thought, you know, this, this rule that you, you know, get over infidelity quickly because the heart goes where it wants to go, um, that that rule is, is something the movie has affection for. And I'm wondering, you know, more deeply what people think of that. You know, I think this ties back to, uh, Tom, what you said earlier about whether you're not sure if the movie is actually as scathing as, as it's made out to be. Um, and I think even the director is not sure about that either, because he has said, uh, I think this thing is rotten to the core, but he has also said he wasn't aware that he was making a controversial film. And I think the reason it's become controversial is because of the reaction of the people watching it at the time. This movie was made in 38, and it's essentially set uh, in that time. I mean, if it was set a little bit earlier, it doesn't really matter. So they're watching themselves on screen. And I think this, I mean, clearly all these relationships and these uh, events are pushed to the extreme, but it's still a reflection of what they're seeing. So they felt 
like they were being laughed at. It's almost like if someone made a satire of, of the cultural stuff that's happening in, in any, in today, in a year ago, we see ourselves, and if it's pushed to the extreme, we might see ourselves as being silly. Um, and I think that's where the reputation comes from it being scathing. Um, so yeah, I honestly don't have an answer. I think it's possible that he was just like, no, this is just the way Paris is. This is how we do it. Or it could also be like saying, hey, look, you know, she said she's okay in this scene, but clearly she can't uh, take it anymore. She falls in love with three people in as many scenes. That's, that's kind of like the beauty of the movie, that there is no answer. I, I fall in the camp that it, it was meant to be or it, it was perceived to be he heavy handed. I, I don't think it was, uh, you know, subtle. I really think he was trying to show the extreme cases. I, I don't think everyone was like that. Just like Ragnar said, people might, might have been put off by it, seeing themselves. But it, it, I feel like it was purposely made to the extreme cases. And that's why you had these very complex um, love triangles. And also they were extremely fickle too because if you're that madly in love you're not like oh wait i just realized i'm not in love with you i'm in love oh wait no i'm i'm in love with you oh okay you're here you now i love you <laughs> yeah and we should maybe mention a little bit of, of the movie's history and you you ragnar you mentioned the the, the fact that it has various cuts mm. and uh, one of the reasons for this is that this movie was a it was the most expensive movie in france made up to that point it was, was originally, I think, budgeted at two and a half million dollars, you know, converted to American currency. And I think it went over five million in its day in 1939. Um, and it lost almost all of it. It was a, a critical flop. The initial cut, I think it was 90 minutes, and then they cut it down to like around 80 minutes, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, uh, which is insane to me that you could compact this movie into 80 minutes. Um, and it was really like booed and hissed. And what's, what's interesting is if you read newspaper accounts from the time, um, it's both the right and the left are angry at it. Because the, the right was kind of angry at it for it being condemning like France. And the left was angry at it because it was too sympathetic to the upper classes. <laughs> so even people in its day in, in that culture didn't, you know, didn't um, have like a, a, a didn't come down one way or another on how you know the director felt about this and i think this is you know one of the reasons why i find this kind of so lovely is that um there's flaws there's deep problems and there's always love there's always kind of genuine i think affection for a lot of these people um, even as ridiculous as they can be sometimes ragnar or anyone else did you see any of the other cuts and if so were there major differences? What were the differences? I I did see a uh, special feature that compared key scenes. Um, the original cut was 94 minutes. It went down to 81. And when it went down, it took a lot of scenes away from uh, Octave um, and made him a more one-dimensional character. Uh, for example, the scene in the greenhouse where he... Uh, I'm sorry, Christine asks him to kiss him. He kisses her on the cheek. And then she says, no, kiss me like a lover. And he kisses her in the mouth. That whole scene was cut away. Um, the scene where he's on the bridge and he expresses his, um, his frustrations with his life and where it's going, that whole scene was cut away. As a matter of fact, that scene wasn't even in the original because the restored version in the 50s is actually 106 minutes longer than the original version. 
So it actually expanded upon some ideas that Jean Renoir started in the original. Uh, that original cut is completely lost due to the, the war. That's interesting because I think those were some very impactful yeah. scenes. And usually, sometimes I don't like when movies tinker too much after mm -hmm. the fact, but that was pretty powerful. All right. Now, KJ, our last picker. Um, the final category is The Marriage of Figaro. All right, I'll do The Marriage of Figaro here. It's time for question three. The film begins with an excerpt from act four of Beaumontchamps 1784 play, The Marriage of Figaro. I'll recite the poem, and after I do, I wanna know, what is the poem's significance to the rest of the film? So here's the poem. Sensitive hearts, faithful hearts, who blames love where it ranges? Cease to be cruel. Is it a crime to change? If love was given wings, it was not to flutter. I guess I'm locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, so the poem, which I do now kind of remember them showing, um, I wasn't really paying attention to it while watching the movie. So even, even trying to follow that poem is not that easy. There's a lot of this and this and a bit of this, but there's this. So this poem kind of explains the chaos that you're about to see in this movie. The, 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 there's a, if love was given wings, it shouldn't flutter, or if not to flutter. But everybody's fluttering through this whole movie. This movie was about fluttering, moving from person to person. Your emotions are up, your emotions are down. So I think the, the poem kind of just preps you for the chaos of the movie. Um, and to follow up, to, to, to show a, a contrast, if the last movie we did, Afterlife, was that pond, that very calm pond you were talking about, Tom, this movie was a raging river. And I think that poem sums that up. Uh, this one really goes over how the characters, regardless of social status, act. So. In general, your heart knows what it wants, so follow your heart. And that's what these people did. But you know what? Uh, sometimes your heart is taking you in one direction, and then you see a new person, and it takes you in another. And that's just uh, how these people interact with each other. Um, specific examples, even on some of the minor characters, include Lizette. Uh, Eve, early on, she's talking with Christine, and they say, oh, yeah, I'm married, but don't you have a bunch of lovers? And it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's for fun, of course. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> you know? So that was just to set the tone of the, the whole movie. Mine's going to be very similar to Nick's. Uh, just two quick parts. Uh, as far as the actual words, uh, you know, who blames the heart uh, when it ranges, something along those lines, it's basically... The heart wants what it wants. Not only the heart wants what it wants, but when it wants it too. Um, and, and that changes, like we talked about Christine, just her heart goes through three different people in, in such a short time. And the second part is that I'm not very familiar with The Marriage of Figaro, but I, on the surface level, it is a, a comedic opera uh, and about fidelity, seduction, and all that stuff. So it, 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 they do kind of tie together in that sense. Ooh, a lot of good answers here. I am going to give it a two-way tie to KJ and Nick. No offense to you, Ragnar. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that answer. I, I think it's right. Um, Ragnar, I think your answer is right. Um, what I think KJ and Nick both got here is, to start with, with Kevin, who, who introduced, 
um, kind of explaining the chaos, that's not something I thought of when kind of translating this poem. Um, I didn't think it was like, I, I didn't think it was getting at, I think it was getting at what the rule of the game is, which is, you know, let it go sort of. But I think the irony you picked up on KJ is that when, that the rule of the game, though it's a regulation, also allows for a lot of chaos, if not creates a lot of chaos. Um, it's kind of an unrule rule type thing. Um, and I, I think, Nick, what I appreciated about your answer was that that you sort of recognize the universality of that, that characters act kind of out of their, their social class. Um, so I'll give uh, one point to Nick, uh, one point to KJ, and any, any thoughts about this idea of the rule, right? That, you know, if the heart flutters, um, is it really a crime to change? It is interesting because it, it almost seems that the rules of the game, you're almost defining what it is to be human, is to follow your emotions, to follow how you're feeling right now. So I wonder, is that what they're saying the rules of the game are? We are the game and we follow our own rules? I always saw the rules, you know, the title of the movie is so important. You know, the rules of the game, I always thought that as the rules of society, the rules of manners and being polite. And why is it called that when all this is so chaotic and they're always breaking the rules? And I think it's to show, you know, this maybe is going back to what, what Nick said about how he does feel it was a, 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 a scathing review, a satire knowingly, because there's a scene with um, Christine and uh, Andre where she does tell him, you know, I love you. And he says, let's run away. Let's run away. You and me right now in the middle of the party, let's leave, but let's go tell him first or else I'll feel bad. That's the rule. You got to just tell him first, you know? So it's kind of like, wait, what? You, you want to be polite about the fact that you're stealing his wife? The wife, stealing the wife is not, not bad, but if you do it not along the rules of the game, then it's considered poor. So I think that's where the title comes in and why it's so important. Yeah, I, I agree with that. My my initial, when I first saw it, I thought the rules of the game was, you know, in that same sense, the kind of the rules of society. It seems to be, and I think um, the, 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 Marquis, the Marquis says this at one point, that you, you're really not supposed to express frustration or kind of emotion when the heart, heart wanders, right? It's supposed to kind of fly to, to different people. But I think you're right, that is within the context of this social class, right? It's like when somebody goes off to have an affair, that's fine. You're supposed to kind of, you know, get over it. It's not, it's not what we do. We don't get in fights when our, our wives sleep with our friends, right? We just sleep with someone else, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Tom, uh, these were some great questions for uh, round one. I can't wait to see what you have in store for us in round two. We just have to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Previously on Marlowe's Spliced Craze Lab Mystery. What's the case? Well, she says Splice Craze has kidnapped her husband, Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet Esquire, and is using him to do experiments. She says Splice Craze has kidnapped her husband, Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet Esquire, and is using him to do experiments. Marlon narrows his eyes, lighting a cigarette with a wrist flick, and sips down a warm drink of delicious, unfiltered smoke. 
kids? Nothing. We don't have a clue where they're hiding him. Marla leans over the intercom. Hey, toots, baby, sweetheart, darling, heart attack. He says to his secretary, Miss Toots, baby, sweetheart, darling, heart attack. Send in the dame. Miss Toots, baby, sweetheart, darling, heart attack walks into the office wearing a practical plaid ankle-length dress and a stern yet knowing expression. You want to get a look at her, Miss Toots, baby, sweetheart, darling, heart attack says, the slightest of grins growing beneath her nose. And boy, does he. Bacall Marlene Eliza O'Shaughnessy Rutledge's almond eyes glide over the three faces looking up to admire her hourglass figure and tight purple blouse. The rouge on her cheeks sucks in the naked bulb's light. The red on her lips casts it out again. Everything about her smells of sex and suspicion. Thanks, Miss Toots Baby Sweetheart Darling Heart Attack. I'll take it from here. Marlowe pulls out a chair and invites Bacall Marlene Eliza O'Shaughnessy Rutledge to sit. She doesn't sit so much as caress the chair. What can I do for you? (laughs) My husband went missing two days ago. He often slips away in the night to work on some project or another for his company. I never know when or why. Most nights I'm so desperate for company lying in red silk sheets, in unusually skimpy lingerie, missing the sweet caresses of a man. Sweat breaks on Marlowe's brow. Madam? No need to be so formal. You can call me Bacall Marlene Eliza. Bacall Marlene Eliza. What company does your husband sneak off to? Why, he works for... Splice Craze Lab. It's the premier gene manipulator in the world. Really, it was the cat's meow in Milan last summer. And we're back. What do you have in store for round two, Tom? All right. Um, round two is coming up. Let me just review the points. We have Ragnar and Nick are tied at two with KJ at one point. So now for round two, we have a number of categories coming up. Each question will be worth two points unless I change my mind at the last minute. Here are the categories. The mechanicals, firepower, and class. So now for this category, we'll have uh, Ragnar start us off. I'm intrigued by the mechanicals. It's time for question four. This film is filled with a number of machines. Select a machine that you think is most important to the film, its themes, its plot, pick what you like, and say why you think that machine is most important. Locked in. Lock it. Yep, locked in. I really want to start with KJ because he looks so happy, but we haven't started with Nick yet. (laughs) So we're we're going to have to start with Nick. Okay, well, I'm going to go with uh, during the party where they're having all the different kind of uh, presentations. Uh, the Marquis um, shows off his newest um, device that he's acquired, and it's this giant music playing machine. And it's actually quite, it has an organ built in, it's quite ornate, and it has um, figurines on the side that 
ring bells. It's just, there's a lot going on and it's very chaotic. And I think what it does is it shows you or introduces us to the chaos that is about to ensue. This is when the party gets really crazy. And I couldn't even believe what was going on. You have some people enjoying these plays and these presentations and dancing, and you have another person being chased around, uh, being shot at, and all of this is happening. And, and, and one other person, Christine, they're fighting over because she went off with somebody else. And all of this insanity is happening. And meanwhile, the party goers are just chilling out through all this. So that really is when things really hit the fan, if you will. All right. Thank you, Nick. KJ, I have to go with you next. You look so happy. I just want you, to, the audience, to know how happy Kevin looks. <laughs> I am really happy, Tom. Because, well, unfortunately, this isn't a good answer for your question, but it's my favorite line in the movie. <laughs> Octave is there in his bedroom with the pilot. And I don't know what they're talking about, but he picks up one of the pillows and he goes, you like pillows? And he tosses it. I can't stand them. I don't know why. He's just. I'm done with these pillows. Pillows are ridiculous. So I know pillows aren't mechanical <laughs> or not. A, yeah, they're not mechanical at all, actually. But I'm going to go with the pillows because people were tossing things like, Sometimes they're really into people. Sometimes they can't stand them. They just throw them away like it's nothing. So I'm going with the pillows. All right. I'll let you know I have a memory foam pillow. So I'll consider that technology. How about that? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Kevin, for providing an answer. That's, that's very good. And Ragnar, what do you have? I was also going to go with the big mechanical music thing, uh, but... Besides that, I, I really like the scene uh, where right after the mechanical uh, monstrosity, where the skeleton uh, dance is happening. And if you see right before it starts, the piano is playing itself. There's a machine that's playing the piano for uh, the, the music. And the woman who had been playing piano up to that point is next to the piano and she's actually looking down at the keys playing themselves and you, she has this look on her face like i'm out of a job and it was just something that to me that look of hers was just like it made me start laughing out loud and, and i really really liked it and uh i don't know that's that's it just really struck a chord with me all right very nice i i have to say that was one of my favorite moments too. When when you see it's a player piano that's going and yeah. she's she's watching it. I'm gonna give I'm gonna split it a point each for Ragnar and, and uh, Nick. I almost said KJ. So sorry, KJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, KJ, you're out. Yeah, just please please go home. Um, I, I in part because I just I love the the player piano and I I just love how the technology there really is changing the culture. Now it's a small thing, but you know. Like you said, she, she's out of a job. I mean, I think she's she's probably bourgeois, so I don't think she's working anyway, but out of a job in terms of like a role in this society. Um, but I think, Nick, you're, the way you, you talked about how it's uh, the, the giant mechanical device is presaging the chaos to come, I think is like a perfect way to describe, a perfect metaphor, or a perfect way to describe the metaphor that the film is working with in terms of machinery. And so, uh, point to each, uh, Ragnar and Nick. And I want to know, because there's a lot of technological uh, tip of the hats too, so to speak. There's a, they fuel the plot a little bit, but they're kind of on the borders of the society. 
the movie opens with a successful cross-Atlantic flight. Our, one of our main characters, Andre, successfully crosses the Atlantic on his plane. Um, and this is this is a big deal. It's the, the longest flight since Lindbergh, or the last, you know, the first time someone has done this since Lindbergh, I think, in the, in the plot of the film. Um, and I was wondering what people thought of the way movies use tech, this movie specifically uses technology and how it produces meaning that way. There was, there was two things. First of all, I really like Nick's answer because the mechanics of that giant machine were then reflected in the chaos. Again, going back to like a Seinfeld episode, each of those moving parts, the one guy running around with a gun shooting at everybody would all often collide into another, uh, another scene that was happening that was another piece of the machine that was the movie it also highlighted the incredible camera work in this movie i i usually can't stand when a camera kind of just moves across and you find something else but it worked so well in this movie going from scene to scene just like the a giant mechanical clock or or whatever that was in the in the show the other thing that i found interesting was the technology in the movie, people were constantly playing with it. In almost every scene, somebody had something in their hands. They were either fixing it, playing it, using it to seduce somebody. There was just a lot of motion all the time with the props in the scenes. Yeah, that that is true. There, there's a lot of, um, like we, when we first meet um, Robert, our, our marquis, he's kind of winding up a little mechanical doll. Um, that seems to be his his fascination. And the, there is no point, I think, in which the movie's looking at technology in necessarily a negative way, or not expressly, right? It's not like, nobody's ever scared of it. Maybe this, the lady who's looking at the player piano is like, oh crap. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the movie on its face doesn't seem to be necessarily condemning technology. I don't know. Yet, yet, like Nick said, you know, I think Nick, you know, what, I'm going to give Nick an extra point because I think that was a pretty solid reading. Um, <laughs> Nick, oh. if you know, with my episodes, the point system is sort of, <laughs> it's sort of ad hoc. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, I, I think what kind of Nick's careful reading reveals is that uh, the way technology interacts is subtly, ne maybe not necessarily undermining things, possibly undermining things, but also introducing disorder in a certain way. But I don't know, do people agree with me or do, do you take the more kind of, it's just a, a sort of marvel that people can enjoy? I, I do agree with you. And one of the things I'm just waiting to insert into this episode was, I love the, the really tiny binoculars <laughs> that they use to look at the squirrel. And talking about inserting chaos, because, she, uh, because Christine had these tiny binoculars, she saw her husband with the mistress. Because they're like, oh, you must be looking into something that's really interesting. I just thought that was kind of uh, funny. Because at first, I didn't know what the point. I'm like, I'm sure they're tying in these tiny binoculars for a reason. <laughs> okay, KJ. Two remaining categories are class and firepower. Let's add a little class to this podcast. It's time for question five. At the end of the film, St. Alban tells the general that there is a new definition of the word accident. The general responds by saying, no, the Marquis has class. Then the film ends. What is the film's definition of class? Locked in. Yeah, sure, I'm locked in. Locked in. I think the film's definition of 
class is face, saving face, protecting it, uh, making sure that we do not give in to chaos. Uh, so what could be more chaotic than a, essentially a murder? Uh, this, this man was killed, uh, Andre was killed, and it was kind of swept under the rug uh, as an accident, which it clearly was not. The, the, the general who's older and, and is probably more embedded into that culture, he says, no, there was chaos, but he saved faith. He gave us an acceptable excuse that will allow us to continue to enjoy this evening without giving it to any chaos. That's class. Uh, very similar to Ragnar, um, although I think Ragnar put it better by saying saving face. I, I, I had that um, the film thinks that class is the characters having the grace not to make a spectacle out of things when you didn't need to. And granted, a lot of things in the movie were a spectacle, but usually if there was an observer who could have been um, hurt by the spectacle, they had the grace not to make it worse or even sometimes um, made it better by saying, hey, it's okay, let's move on. Movie defines class as not only knowing the rules, but following the rules of society at all costs. Oh, wow. These are all very good answers. Um, and they all sort of, you're all sort of saying the same thing in, in, in different ways, um, oh, which makes this hard. I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with KJ's answer. Um, I, I, you know, everybody's right, right? I mean, uh, how about this? I'm going to modify. Everybody gets a point. KJ gets two points. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> And I think the reason why I'm going to go with, with KJ's answer is the use of the word grace. I think, and this is especially true of genres like this, where the way to perform high comedy, the way to perform upper classness, regardless of country, is this sort of, this kind of like liquid body, right? The, the, the people in this movie sort of move through the world in a different sort of way than uh, like a Marlon Brando, right? Like a character, Marlon Brando would never be in a high comedy in part because he's dead, but also because he's, he's kind of like a, a brutish guy, right? He's a, he's a force. And so you can't just have him in a high comedy. You need someone who is, uh, who is more dancer-like in the way they perform. And I think that that idea of grace and not making a spectacle are kind of bound together. It's almost like you're sort of defining the, the class, not only with the rules, but the the way the rules define the physical body itself. I don't know. I like the answer. Um, any other thoughts on this idea of class and how class is defined in this film? No, but I'd love to see Weekend at Brando's where they bring up his dead body <laughs> and, and make him dance and be in the comedy. Sorry. Yes, Weekend at Brando's. No one saw it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Now, Going into our last question, we have uh, Ragnar with four points, Nick with five points, and Keja with three. Our last question is worth two points, um, and it goes to Nick. I will choose firepower. <laughs> it's time for question six. What is the significance of the hunt? I guess I'm locked in. Locked in. Locked in. 
the hunt, I believe, is quite important to the movie because it provides a chunk of time where the characters can interact with each other, uh, not just because we're at one person's house or this. It's all the characters together, and they can mix with each other and have personal conversations. And the, the key to that is, uh, and, and this goes back to something Nick said about the eyeglass, is that it also provides perceived uh, privacy where they think they're all by themselves, but it's just somebody overhearing or a little spyglass and it's not so private anymore. And I think it also goes to show the almost absurdity of the hunt because you see the amount of effort and people that it takes to pull this pretty much event that for these rich people is just, you know, a 20 minute little shootout and they have a blast, but it takes a monumental amount of effort just to provide them with a small amount of uh, entertainment. So in the hunt, right, if you were a, a rabbit or a, a pheasant, I think is the other thing they're often looking for. You're having your day, you're chilling, it's kind of normal. Shot goes off and everybody starts running. Well, some people start running. The rabbits start running, the pheasants start running. Who knows the chaos they're knocking into each other. The hunters are now trying to shoot at each other. The dogs are making sure they're on it so that they can retrieve the corpses. And I, I felt like in the movie... Things were kind of normal, kind of normal. And then one event would happen and some people would go running. Some people would stand their ground. Some people would clash into each other and eventually things would settle out, settle out, settle out. And then bang, another shot. So I, I kind of felt like the movie was a hunt in a certain way without guns shooting, but instead these reveals of the triangles or other major events in the movies would would be those shots that would send everybody running for a few minutes. Yeah, I thought this whole hunt scene was quite interesting and a little shocking, which I'm sure we'll go into, but it was a, a, a glimpse of things to come. It starts off with a calm before the storm with all the main characters interacting and then rapidly goes chaos ensues. And that is what is going to happen at the party later in this movie. So it's giving us a sense of they get together on calm terms and then chaos. And, it, and there's even uh, uh, gun, uh, gunshots at the party too. So it, it, that's what I thought of uh, when I saw this or reflected on this. Great, wow, another th three good answers. Oh, I, my, my questions need to be more difficult, I think. <laughs> The uh, it's interesting that the kind of the brutality of it because it is a brutal scene. Nick, you mentioned that 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 wasn't really the center of anybody's answer it was necessarily the, the the brutalness of it because the movie is so kind of liquid and easy and sympathetic, except for this like three minute sequence of rabbits dying, <laughs> like we get and and some pheasants. But I, I timed it; it's like three minutes of just rabbits dying. It's it's I mean like incredibly strange i was gonna save that for the rant that's why i didn't want to go into it but one of the things that i actually text out to kj and tom when i watched this was this movie clearly did not have a no animals were harmed in the making of this film <laughs> so it was like whoa and you would not see that in any any like modern film at all it just would not exist and it is lengthy so i um i think a Again, splitting point. I'm going to split points between Ragnar and Nick because I think the the Nick is you. You are intelligently again reading the scene into the rest of the film, um, kind of the hunt before you know the, the gun shootout in the actual house, 
And but I, I love, you know, Ragnar, your answer regarding the kind of um, the coordination of characters or the characters out and about being able to spy on one another, that type of scene. So why don't we uh, split the points there? Um, and I would give KJ points, but I forgot what your answer was. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, um, it was. I don't, I don't remember it being interesting. <laughs> 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 so that brings us to the end. And shall I count up the points? It looks like Nick won today. What? Um, which hasn't happened in a long time. No, it's been quite some time. <laughs> it's been weeks, yeah. So Nick Although had... just by a little. <laughs> just by a little. Yeah, it was six to five. <laughs> Nick just eked it out. And KJ was way in the back, um, <laughs> picking up the rear. Yeah, <laughs> not a bad place to be. Yeah, no, no. It was, it was a tight competition today, though. It Actually, was, yeah, low scoring points if you really think about it. I mean, mm. what was it, six five three? I mean, it was pretty pretty tight pack. Yeah, it, it was. There's a lot of a lot of good answers, and a lot of the answers kind of converged on each other or picked up something I thought that was true of the scene, but in different ways. So it became a lot of splitting the points, but excellent. Yes. Yeah. No, this Tom, Tom, this was a, not only a, a great choice of movie, but a, a great series of questions. And I, I think we really got pretty deep into these discussions too. Um, of course we do have our movie rant coming up. Should there be any other thoughts on our mind, but we do have to take a quick moment uh, to pay those bills. We'll be right back. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But enough for me, let's hear from one of our customers. I'm Paul, and I'm being paid to promote Perfectly Placed. The other day I was writing a song. It was pretty good, actually. It had a chorus and a refrain. I was even going to put in a key change, but I didn't know how to start the song. All songs need a beginning, and that's when I felt my fingers being moved by someone. It was actually kind of creepy. And then I heard a voice whisper, Paul, start the song. So I strummed the strings. It sounded perfect. Thanks, Perfectly Placed, from saving me from another hard day's night. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. And we're back for our famous movie rant. I know we covered a lot already, but any other thoughts regarding the rules of the game? It's time for Movie Rand. So one of my favorite quotes about this film is, uh, it's about a society that's dancing on the edge of a volcano, which is something that was mentioned during our discussion. As has come up in our discussion, one of the themes is this kind of split in the movie between how the irony in it is working. Is it vicious or is it a little more gentle and sympathetic. Are we dancing on the edge of a volcano or are we um, maybe bidding a fond farewell? And I'm wondering, um, you know, what people thought of that and especially historically speaking, what people thought of that in, re in regards to the kind of oncoming tragedy of the Second World War. I think that, yeah, I agree with you, Tom, that dancing at the edge of a volcano is, it perfectly summarizes this movie not just because of the content in it, but like you alluded to, historically speaking. I mean, this movie came out in, in 39. They're about a year or less away from being occupied by the Nazis, um, which would see the end of this kind of culture. This, this movie is almost like a, a, the bookend for this type of culture that was never seen after this because of the 
the, the war. So I think that brings a lot of weight to this movie. And I think it's absolutely a, historical, a historically important film. One of the things that I noticed from this, and, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but the actual location, the French Chateau and, and the grand lifestyle, thinking back to some of the earlier questions, I, I did think of the U.S. equivalent of the Roaring Twenties and, and, and more of the Great Gatsby type era. And even up in Newport, Rhode Island, you have all these old houses. It reminded me of what those were portraying from Europe, and that was the actual original version of that. So I just thought it was an interesting look at an era gone by. And uh, I, I enjoy that not only in U.S. history, but also the origin or the inspiration for that type of uh, lifestyle and, and uh, architecture. Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, America has makes these same kind of, of movies, especially in the 30s. Um, I mean, this movie was also made in the 30s. Uh, and, you know, kind of the American anxiety is we're not supposed to have classes. We're a classless society, but we have classes, right? You know, they're just kind of predicated upon wealth. And, and here we have one that, you know, you have an actual member of a, a titled nobility, sort of, um, a titled person, let's say that, with the, the marquee. Um, but I think it's a great point, Ragnar, of the fact that this society will not be seen after this, that this goes away. And, you know, there's no way Renoir could have known that. I mean, he flees, he flees Europe, uh, or he flees France for Italy, and then right after that, he goes to America, and that's when his, his you know, the second phase of his career starts, the Hollywood phase. And, uh, you know, it, looking back on it from this, this removed historical perspective, it's interesting to think of people back then may have maybe thinking that this is a class that should go away, and us looking back and realizing the, the kind of the horrors that actually did make the class go away, right? You know, there's sort of, um, you know, the, the thing that actually wipes out what you don't like can be much worse than, the, than you know, the thing that gets wiped out. I still think my, my reading of it is, just because I like it more, is that there's a tremendous amount of affection for this world. Um, and I'm wondering if other people saw or felt that kind of affection or, if the the irony is um, is not permitting that, I think they're playing both sides. I think there's certainly an affection for it. I'm sure that director went to some parties that he really enjoyed in that kind of a setting. Um, but he also sees the underbelly of it and and that side. I mean, even like the the poem from the beginning, how there was I forget the exact wording, but these dichotomies. I, I think this movie walks that line quite well, where it does have an affection for it, but realizes that it's not a perfect thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, he's from this culture, whether he, he likes it or not. His father uh, is extremely famous, uh, very successful painter. And he was born in, and lived in this kind of somewhat high society. So regardless of how he feels about it, he's from it. And you always have, you know, uh, home is where the heart is. You were raised there. So yeah, I do agree. He has some affection for this culture. Yeah. And it's his sources for this and a lot of his other movies are these, um, these 18th century French comedies, which one we brought up, the, the Marriage of Figaro was a one of a trilogy of plays that some were converted into an opera, um, operas. 
or you have like Marivaux, who also had these kind of upper class sex comedies that he wrote in, in the 18th century. Uh, the, the Triumph of Love, I think, is, is the most famous. And I know Renoir writes about and talks about in interviews, sort of looking back on the, the 18th century, 18th century France as, a, as an inspiration. Um, Cognier, the head domestic, is named for the, the French playwright from that time period also. I was wondering, do, do we think possibly that the, the society he's looking at and the influences he's drawing do they permit a sort of escapism from the, the kind of the, the modern world, which at this point, you know, you see the rise of Nazism in, in Germany, fascism in Italy, and then also the fact that all of these people, including Renoir, were in World War I, which was you know, the most devastating thing in the world up to that point. Um, does this film function in, in that kind of way at all? Or does the the trappings of modern life, the, the mechanical stuff, the hunt, does that prevent that kind of escape? I, I hesitate to answer because this is not where I would want to escape to. I usually find myself in Hyrule or the Mushroom Kingdom, not uh, fancy France land. Um, so it, it might be, I just don't know if I'm in a position to comment on that. Tom, you spoke earlier about how in the 30s, uh, escapism was very important and, in america uh, yeah. in america because of the great depression you know? and so there was all these sci-fi and cowboys and, and the good guy wins and all that kind of stuff i don't or think high comedies right like wealthy high, yeah. people right it's like Absolutely. we're gonna you know mm -hmm. something along the lines of like uh, i'm not sure about the decade but something along the lines of duck soup uh, these kind of really zany comedies uh, France was not going through the same thing as that. So I don't really see the movie as an escape, hmm. um, but I see it as more of a statement from the director. A statement in terms of? In terms of, in terms of what, how he feels. About, I see it as a statement in terms of how complex he feels about this society. And not only does he want to say, hey, this is what I think is bad, yet I still have a lot of tenderness for where I come from. But also I want to show you a mirror. Um, and, and, and I think we were talking earlier about how various sides of, of the culture reacted to this movie differently. And that to me is a, a, a very complex movie that's really truly showing a mirror to society. Everyone sees something different. And because it's somewhat exaggerated, they don't like what they see. So that's where the poor reactions come in. It wasn't until later in the 50s uh, where people were like, okay, you know, no one's offended anymore because that culture, you know, was tragically ended. And, you know, what's the, what's the famous expression? Comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, and then you have people kind of looking, people that can then look back on that with, with also, also affection. Right. I mean, it's when you're not involved in a political struggle, you can look back kind of dispassionately. Um, and that's when you have people like uh, Truffaut saying um, Renoir was was the father of us all. When back then he was kind of thought of maybe as, as second rate. Um, you know, there's a few French directors who are kind of ranked higher than him. And now it's he's got to be like the best. Right. That's how we think of, of Renoir. I want to talk a, a little bit about um, kind of the technology in the film. Uh, and the, the way Renoir uses the camera. Um, the, the depth of field shots he used 
as well as his means of both panning and dollying the camera around. Um, there's, a, there's an earlier movie, I'm gonna monologue a second. There's an earlier movie by Renoir, Le Chien, which uh, an early thirties movie about a, um, an artist who gets involved with a prostitute. And he thinks that uh, the, the prostitute's in love with him. And then the artist walks in on the prostitute with, with another man in bed. And he realizes, you know, it's it's nonsense, right? It's it's a facade, and the way Renoir shoots it is, he has a camera on a dolly, film into the bedroom from behind a window outside of the building, so the camera just passes by a window, and you could see the man's face through the glass window, um, and so by using this depth of field, depth of field being able to capture both the foreground and the background in focus as well as the dolly, he's able to kind of express the, the isolation of this character. And I'm wondering how those, um, those bits of technology or skill influence the way this movie was made or your watching of this film. I couldn't believe how much they could move the camera back in 39. And on top of that, I couldn't believe how well it worked. Um, as I said before, usually in movies, if they start moving the camera too much, it's very distracting for me. I don't know if you saw the 1917 movie that got a lot of praise for its camera work, but most of the time I'm just sitting there wondering how did they do that with the camera instead of watching the movie. In this, in Rules of the Game, it was it was absolutely it was wonderful that that it allowed multiple things to be happening in any given scene at the same time, and the the camera would just transition from one to another seamlessly. I, I kind of like their mechanical devices in the in the in the movie like i imagine that's how the inside of one of those clocks might work um but I, I thought it was really well done i was very surprised yeah one of the reasons uh this film is so important is because of those that, that deep focus uh, and long takes that you were talking about Tom. and i think there's a scene early on about 20 minutes in where uh octave is talking to robert uh, and they're walking across the room as they're talking and the camera is actually on the far wall of the of, of the of the of the room and they're on the completely other side of the room and they're going back and forth they're walking to one side they're walking to the other side and the camera never gets close to them but it's always razor sharp and it's always it's always in frame and and just that kind of thing is not that kind of technique is not common before that and that's why I think one of the reasons, and I'll talk about this later when I go off about the 30s, um, that's one of the reasons why I think KJ said this movie feels modern. It feels more modern than the 39 film because it was laying the groundwork that we are familiar with now. Yeah, so you, the kind of depth of field we always associate with Citizen Kane, right? It's this mm -hmm. idea like Citizen Kane invented it. And it's like, eh, well, no, <laughs> this was used before. Um, yeah. And I honestly, I think to a greater effect in, in this film than in Citizen Kane. Um, you know, Citizen Kane does this kind of wonderful expressionistic stuff with the uh, with having everything in, in focus. Um, but there's great scenes, especially where you see, or, or great moments where you'll see like Christine go up to, to Andre, and then in the background you see her husband kind of standing there. And they're all in focus at the same time, and it creates a visual metaphor. Um, 
And, and furthermore, the whole thing feels like it's dancing. The pans, um, the, the, the dolly through through the room. It, it feels like it has the, the kind of great, it, it feels like that's, that's why that question, that answer resonated with me. Because even the camera work seems to capture the, the sort of style, the elan of, of, of these people. Um, and which is kind of sad that that's gone, right? I mean, I was never alive for it, but you know, it looks like a trip, honestly. Yeah, I agree with that. I love that that scene that you're referencing with the the, the two lovers and the, the woman at the center of it all in the same shot. And that that style of blocking was becoming better used, you know? I think back on, on, on this movie called His Girl Friday which is from 1940, just a year after this movie. And that one is it's such a fast-paced, razor-sharp movie, both in terms of dialogue and in movement, but people never get lost in the frame. Everybody's blocked perfectly. If you go back, that's actually a remake of a movie called The Front Page. And if you watch that original movie, the blocking is it's, it's not good. People are just kind of like in poorly framed shots and and... You know, it is what it is from the time, but in just nine years from 1930, which is when the front page came out, to the rules of the game, this, this technique is really progressing and seeing it come alive, you know, not just the blocking, but the camera work. It's such an exciting time. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. There's, you know, this kind of emancipation from theater, which has been going on, you know, since the, the 19-teens. Um, we talked about a little bit about this on our Dr. Caligari episode. Um, and what's kind of interesting is when the um, when the new technology comes along, uh, the 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 kind of the first thoughts, or maybe not the first thoughts, but the it appears more like either radical to the people who are using it, or they use it in a more radical way than than later would happen. Um, you think of like a lot of the like Napoleon, the experimental French movie, silent French movie, which is you know four hours of kind of experimental stuff. Um, and then what you're kind of picking up, Ragnar, is what what ends up really being uh, taken away with the way we use the camera is a new type of blocking, a non-theatrical, cinema-friendly type of blocking, which is far simpler than you know four hours of experimental Napoleon stuff. Um, you know, uh, but but you know, far more important. Uh, think of it like with CGI today, where it's it's like Star Wars Episode Two is is you're kind of choking on it. But by the time you get to like something like Ex Machina, the CGI has been kind of infused into into the narrative in a more in a more fundamental, more practical, and also more appealing way. Absolutely, mm -hmm. definitely. I just wanted to talk about the 1930s as 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 one of the an, an underappreciated film decade. We we talk a lot about 1939 because it was stacked, but the whole the whole decade around the world was phenomenal. Uh, and I think when you watch movies from the 30s, an audience member now would be surprised how modern it feels, because that's that is where they started to lay the groundwork for tropes in terms of the genres. Uh, and camera work and, and the techno and the, the the operational side of, of it of filmmaking, you see the birth of modern cinema in the thirties, but it also does not have the restrictions that we do now. 
the first half of that decade was pre-code. So what they were doing there was pretty outrageous. Um, and, and then the movies were restricted. But even still, it, it's, it's basically a rock and roll decade. They, they're creating new things. They're breaking away from theater, as you mentioned, and they're creating genres. You, know, you can go through so many from Westerns like Stagecoach, rom-coms, It Happened One Night, uh, Fantasy, Wizard of Oz. It's, they're really truly laying down the groundwork to what we were gonna use for the next several decades. Yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. And I think an important one. It seems like there's a, a revolution in genre. It seems to be what you're saying, right? Like genre is, um, is gonna be kind of a guiding principle for, for film. I think in theater at this time, it would probably be more practical to say style is a guiding thing in theater. But I think you're right. And I think that um, genre guides American movies, especially, you know, and it's a really good point. Like this is where this starts. And even looking at something like the difference between um, His Girl Friday and this film, you know, they're, they're two comedies, but they could not be any more different than Night and Day. Um, or looking at His Girl Friday and uh, It Happened One Night. You know, you have the, uh, the, the hard edge comedy of His Girl Friday. Uh, you could see this in Chicago too. Chicago, both the original play and, and the musical has this kind of hard edge, um, kind of workplace type thing. In Chicago, it's a little different, but in you know, His Girl Friday, it's, it's the newspaper office, right? It's hard edge, there's a way people talk um, and there's a way a romantic relationship can occur. And then it happened one night, the rules are completely different. I'll be at their both, both these comedies. And yeah, it's, it's a really great point you, you make that those rules, which we still follow today, more or less, are kind of laid down here. Um, and I wonder, do you think like, so 19, the 1970s is also like the other golden age, right? It's the 30s and the 70s. I wonder if the 70s are so interesting in part because it's a time when we start to mess with those rules. We start to violate them. Like, like Robert Altman, um, you know, 1970s, 1980s director. Um, it's, it's interesting to think of him as a genre filmmaker, but every movie he makes is like, you know, I'm, I'm gonna use no rules whatsoever. You know, I'm gonna make MASH. It's gonna be the most, um, it's gonna be a war film, but it's not gonna be recognizable as a war film or Nashville. It's a musical that's, you know, doesn't do, doesn't do the typical musical stuff. Uh, uh, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, a Western, it doesn't do. And yeah, I wonder, I don't know, what do, you, what do you think of that? Do you think like that's how those two decades are kind of talking to each other? Absolutely. I think it's all about cycles. You establish something and at the time it's radical and different. And then 10, 20, 30, 40 years later even, that freshness has worn off. And so the next generation or two generations down has to do something different. And I think that these kind of golden ages, so to speak, that's the cycle they come in where they're breaking away from what was established and doing something new that we haven't seen before. And we, in the 30s, it was genre, you know, we established genre, what science fiction, war, comedy, Westerns, et cetera, they really got there, they cemented themselves in the 30s. And in the 70s, it was directors. That was what was really driving things. This, this artist that was driving it and doing their own their new take on these genres like Robert Altman's the best example he did all the different genres even late in the game with Gosford Park I mean that was in the 2000s 
and he was still playing with these genres and that's important and that's why they're seen as golden ages because they bring a freshness that has not been seen for a very long time the rules of the game define the rules of the game <laughs> a equals a <laughs> what we've discovered after two hours is that a equals, equals a. a all is right in the world now <laughs> the other thing i wanted to mention was uh uh schaefer schaefer i thought it was john cleese at first the whole time i'm just like i'm ready ready. i'm ready john i'm ready i'm ready to laugh but he never broke character um there's one scene where he's got this jacket and he gives it to lisette and it's got a price tag on it (laughs) he pulls the price tag off and he throws it over this bridge and he looks like such a badass throwing this price tag it's it's unbelievable he has a stern face and he never broke he never broke sight of her and he just throws it over nonchalantly it was was pretty pretty hardcore yeah yeah he he's the person who doesn't listen to the rules of the game he's the one person who and he's the one who's who's responsible for the tragedy at the end so yeah that's kind of an interesting irony there is like you know he's the one guy who can get get in it he can understand that you know you sleep with who you want to sleep with and you don't you don't get hung up about it it's real it's like a polyamorous society and the person who can't get the rule you know creates tragedy um yeah it drives him crazy and he sorts to violence yeah yeah exactly and you know it's he's supposed to get over it we're not on his side even yeah. though he's technically being wronged i guess or something right. like we're never on his side um one of my favorite scenes there was when, when the marquee um when when uh, the the poacher marceau um, is trying to avoid, you know, uh, Schumacher, and um, he he goes to the marquee, and the marquee's like, oh yes, I'll, I'll make sure everything's okay, and, he, and the marquee like checks the hallway so that Marceau can get away from him, and kind of snaps and, and lets him know that the coast is clear, and watching that like the high and the low, um, you know, downstairs and upstairs get they they get one another when it comes to having affairs <laughs> with other people's wives. Yeah. Great scene, great scene. He actually even. I think he even pushes him back into like a hallway, like, whoa, 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 you know, because he sees yeah. him coming. Great, great. Yeah. yeah. And we have like no, we have no mercy for Schumacher. And especially at the end when he shoots Andre, it's like, it's almost a justification for why we're not supposed to like this guy. Yep. Um, yeah. But oh, I, yeah, I love that so much. I loved him pushing the guy back or snapping to let Marceau know he can come. Yeah. Um, well, Tom, again, uh, this was a great one, and uh, I will try to congratulate myself in the most... Hey, congratulations, Nick. I'll congratulate you. Well done. Oh, thanks, KJ. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, again, I, I want to thank Ragnar for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you on the internet, Ragnar? People can always find me on the Trolley Stops website, which is the trolley stop cafe.com and the trolley spelled the t-r-o-l-l-e-y i'd also like to thank our intriguing editor kj who masterfully crafts these episodes i'd also like to acknowledge imdb which is a great resource for movie information check out our website talkingpicturestrivia.com for more information about us and our episodes 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's, which is my recommendation from 1985, Back to the Future, to start the trilogy off. Really looking forward to that one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.